Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Amy Bloom is a Connecticut-based writer and psychotherapist and the author of a recent novel entitled Love Invents Us. This book, The Enactment of Psychological Theory About Human Behavior, traces the intimate details of the life of Elizabeth Howe from her childhood to middle age. I spoke with Amy Bloom by phone while she was on tour to discuss Love Invents Us, and I asked her to tell us how does love invent us? I think love invents us for better and for worse, and I think that it begins when we're born, and it begins with the love that our parents have for each other or don't, and the love that we're born into, and what they feel towards us, and I think that has a great deal to do with how our sense of who we are in the world gets formed, and then I think we take that little self and we go out into the world and have other relationships, and each relationship, especially the more intimate ones, shapes and reshapes us. So I mean it in the most profound way. I also mean it in the somewhat more superficial way, which is I think that everybody recognizes that every relationship that you have leaves a little bit of a fingerprint on you, you know, whether it's this person's interest in basketball or that person's interest in opera or this person's French grandmother who used that wonderful expression that you find yourself using for the rest of your life. So I think it's both the little artifacts of the relationship keep shaping us, but also the way we are in each of our love relationships, whether they are passionate or parental or sexual or between friends. Um, and when you say intimate, um, you don't mean sexually intimate exclusively, because in in your book, Love Invents Us, uh, Elizabeth Taub was very close with Mrs. Hill and Mr. Klein. I think that there's a great passion in friendships. I think that there could be a great passion between parent and child. Um, I think that, you know, sex is certainly a very important way of being intimate, but it's certainly not the only way. So what drew you to write the book, Love Invents Us? Well, I, I think that I'm interested in what I'm always interested in, which is people and how they live their lives and how things are passed along from person to person. I suppose in some ways love is one of the characters in the novel, actually, in terms of the way it weaves in and out of people's lives and brings them together and sends them apart and connects them to people with whom they thought they might have thought they had no connection. Um, well, who is Elizabeth? It's interesting seeing how people's lives turn out. Who is Elizabeth Taub? Well, you know, she's not an easy person, and she's not a simple person. Um, I think that she is um, someone who certainly understands some of what she goes through and makes other choices blindly. I don't think she is um, dumb, but that doesn't mean that all of her choices are smart. She strikes me as a reasonably intelligent, somewhat damaged person with a good sense of humor and uh, a number of blind spots. Well, she comes into your book when she's about, is it nine or ten years old? About ten ten or eleven, yeah. And at that point, she has... uh, as I read it, a, uh, a trust for people, a willingness to extend herself and be taken in by them. 
Absolutely. I think she especially feels that way towards adults, especially towards adults who are nice to her, which I think is actually not uncommon for children if they have not had a violent or traumatic childhood. The inclination is to trust grown-ups and to assume that they mean you well. Well, is, is that uh, drawn from your experience as a uh, psychotherapist or your experience as a woman growing up in America? What? Or from where? Towards adults? I think that that's characteristic, as I say, of, of, of most kids who haven't been traumatized are inclined to trust rather than not trust adults. Um, if your parents have not done you active harm, the inclination is to see other adults as different forms of your parents until they demonstrate otherwise. I mean, I'm sure being a therapist has sort of brought that home to me a number of times, but the truth is if you, you know, just look at the people that you know in your lives or think about your own childhood, it seems to me that that's usually the case. It doesn't mean that it can't change very quickly. Well, when, when you create uh, the character Elizabeth uh, Taub, um, you're creating her depth as a uh, young girl and as a teenager and as a 20-year-old and as a 40-year-old woman. Um, how do you develop that, that depth? Where, where does it come from? Well, I think that I live with my characters inside my head for a very long time. I'm not a very quick writer, and I think that the pieces of them develop and develop. Um, there's nobody in the novel about whom I don't know almost everything, including, you know, what they wear when they go to bed at night and uh, where they went to school and how they feel about their parents, whether or not any of those characteristics ever come into the book. So I live with them, and I live inside of them sometimes, and sometimes I look at them from the outside. And when you live with other people in your life, your your family and friends... You mean the non-fictional characters? That's right. Do they live with the fictional characters that you write about? No, I wouldn't say so. Uh, there's usually sort of fairly active three-ring circus inside my own mind. But it doesn't occur to me very much to, uh, to, present, those, to present the fictional characters to the non-fictional ones. In, in creating uh, Love Invents Us, um, I understand it began as a short story. That's right. How did you string it out? Well, um, it, it, that's not exactly how it developed. It was more like I was very struck by this character in the short story and found myself seeing her at other points in her life, um, including some adult moments. And then as I was working with her, um, I realized that the novel would be missing a very important piece if I didn't put the short story element back in, uh, that it was just too big a part of her development as a person to leave it out entirely. So I put it back in and then continued with the rest of her life and the life of the other people in the novel. Tell us uh, which part is the short story element. The very opening, uh, you know, the first you know, 10 or 12 pages is very much the short story from the collection Come to Me. Uh, about uh, a little girl and her friend, Mr. Klein, the furrier, called uh, Light Breaks Where No Sun Shines, which is a line from a Dylan Thomas poem. Well, tell us, um, Amy, something about yourself, um, the life that you lead uh, or have led um, that, that compels you to, to create these fictional characters and, and put them on paper, bring their lives for us to meet. Well, I think 
one of the things that compels me is that I find things out as I write. Uh, and sometimes the characters move the plot along, and sometimes the sentences themselves seem to sort of lead one to another. That's a very good writing day, when one sentence leads to another. I also found that there were just ways of understanding the world that seemed um, both interesting and striking to me as I was putting them down. It, it just gave me other ways of thinking about things. And I, I think also that I like something about that act, the, uh, the sculpting act of writing the sentences and chipping away at the excess stone, you know, until the right sentence is revealed. Um, I've always liked stories. Uh, I've always been a great reader, sort of an omnivorous and somewhat indiscriminate reader. And um, I guess there is a way in which words do something for me that nothing else, not even great paintings, quite do for me. Why do you think that is about yourself? Well, probably because I've always been immersed in books, and so I, I have a strong bias in favor of them. And what I always loved as a, as a little kid about reading was the way in which it felt to me as though you could absolutely sink between the covers of a book into another universe, even if it was similar or if it was very different, and simply be in that world for a period of time. And I think I always wanted, in my own writing, to make the writer as invisible as possible so that it was just the reader and his or her own experience of the book and to try to stay out of their way so they could see it and experience it. I mean, I love it when people come up and argue with me about what someone has done in the book. Give us an example of, of what that argument might be. Oh, you know, I, uh, somebody called me and said, oh, I was so upset with, with Elizabeth. Why didn't she get herself together in the middle of the book? She's so smart. Why was she wasting her time? Which was wonderful. It was as, as though the reader felt like an aunt. You know, she's such a bright girl. Why doesn't she get herself together? And I thought and I, that was great because she was talking about her as if she were a young woman who lived down the street about whom she was very concerned. Um, I gave a reading one time uh, with my last book, and uh, there was a short story um, which was about a complicated set of relationships between two couples, and a guy stood up in the audience and asked a question about what had been on the mind of one of the husbands, and this other guy stood up in the audience and started arguing with him. And it was great. It was as if they were talking about this guy they both knew from work, and they felt absolutely sure that what they had to say about this character and his motivation was just as valid as mine because he belonged to them now. And that, to me, is enormously satisfying. So from the point of view of, um, of the writer, uh, you've achieved, your, achieved a purpose. It feels that way to me. I mean, I think that the... If the character belongs to the reader... If the character belongs to the reader, then, then I've really very much done what I wanted to do. Let me take a moment and say that I'm talking with Amy Bloom uh, from a hotel room in Portland where she is speaking about her new book uh, entitled Love Invents Us. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Amy, when um, 
you create some of the other characters who Elizabeth Tao meets in her life. Um, they're secondary characters, but they move her along as she grows. Do some um, have a specific message that you want them to portray and, and uh, raise to the reader? Well, I don't tend to think that way about the people in the book. Um, and I'm, I know that there are characters who aren't on stage very long. And I guess the way I always feel about it is that, to me, they are all very full characters and full people. It just that in this particular slice of this world, we don't see them very much. And I don't think of any of them as having a particular message. Um, I think that there's sort of a range of relationships that she experiences and a range of relationships that the other characters experience, um, which have all different kinds of love involved in them and move everybody in the book in different directions through their life. And some of those directions, I think, are enormously welcome, positive, and some of those directions are very damaging. I'd like you to tell us about some of those ranges of experience in Love Invents Us. Well, I think, you know, just going from the beginning of, of the book, we also encounter Elizabeth's parents who are not, when we first encounter them through Elizabeth's eyes, not particularly appealing or warm figures. And they are not. They are not at their best as the parents of uh, a lonely and, uh, you know, not very easy child. But later on, you know, Elizabeth and her mother establish a new kind of relationship, and later on, her father goes on to another and happier marriage with somebody utterly different than the person that he had thought he was supposed to marry and be happy with. So it's people like them, where there's Mrs. Hill, who's the elderly black lady that Elizabeth, as a young girl, spends a lot of time with and helps care for. And in this relationship between the two of them, Elizabeth, who has not succeeded in getting the kind of love she wants from her mother, and Mrs. Hill, who has not succeeded in giving the kind of love to her daughter that would make her own daughter close to her, get a second chance and are able to give and take with each other in a way that they had not done in their own original families. And I feel like that happens um, in lots of ways. I think that the older man who becomes obsessed with Elizabeth, Mr. Stone, has his life damaged tremendously because he falls in love with her. If he had only liked her or only appreciated her or only felt paternal affection for her, I think his life would have been happier and uh, saner and more successful from al almost every vantage point. But, you know, as Camus says, we do not choose whom we love. His life seems like it almost self-destructs. It does. It's, it's a very painful thing. And if you've ever seen anybody, you know, that you know, um, not be able to rescue themselves from d going down the tubes, whether through drink or drugs or obsession, it's a painful thing to see. And as much as you are angry with them, it's also sad. So those are some of the characters. Um, well, tell us a little bit about Huddy. Well, Huddy is... Um, uh, certainly a much more apparently sympathetic character than Mr. Stone. He is the great love of Elizabeth's life. Um, he is himself also a, uh, a complicated person with his own goals. And 
there is a life that he wishes to lead, which is a you know, very capital N, normal, and reasonably successful middle-class life. And in many ways, his feelings for Elizabeth and hers for him keep threatening to upend that. Um, but there is a connection between them that stays alive even over time and distance. And uh, I think for both of them, that pushes them in new directions and creates for them in middle age the possibility of a life together. Would you uh, be kind enough to read a passage uh, from your book that in a sense deals with what you're talking about now? Sure. This is a, um, a passage in which Elizabeth, who has not seen Huddy for 15 years and now has a young son named Max, is um, about to receive a visit from Huddy, who has called her out of the blue after all these years. I think my son Max knows exactly which house Huddy is looking for and knows why he's come, knows that this is the man who has come for his mother. I want to think this. I'm beat. I have been explaining single motherhood and conception and marriage and homosexuality and commitment to Max since before he could listen, and I am tired of saying things clearly and reasonably in hopes of warding off trauma. Mad giggling is his response to my sensible, sensitive explanations, and right beneath that, furious disbelief. When he is most angry and disbelieving, he sticks out his tongue and pulls down his lower lids, making faces so ugly and not funny that it's clear his only wish is to make me stop telling these ridiculous and frightening lies. He finds most adult men terrifying beasts, especially the fathers of the little girls he plays with, and he does not believe for one minute that there are women who like to live with them or that even pairs of men make happy and healthy lives. I say these three words together always, banishing all disease, grief, and loneliness in the world of Provincetown and San Francisco and certainly not that I actually parted my legs and let a man put his penis into my vagina. He prefers to believe that I lay very close to, was perhaps sandwiched between his idols, Mr. Rogers and Peter Pan, and their united sperm would, in fact, explain why I have a child like Max. I go back outside, watching Max do his cartwheels, standing so close to Huddy, smell his wheaty, wild onion scent and feel the faint heat of his back and chest. I see my mother propped up on her twin bed in her small, spare apartment, most of her money gone with her only really bad mistake, a light-fingered, slew-footed boyfriend after her late husband, saying in her most fluting and therefore most furious voice, of course one makes it a virtue of necessity, my dear. What else? At least we have the pleasure of fooling others. And she made herself over once more into an admirer of the simple life, a Zen devotee, as she had made herself domestically suburban and then professionally successful, and then a desirable woman of leisure and a certain age, when not one of these things spoke to her own wishes. She made herself pure and died between rough cotton sheets, her bald head on a pillow as harsh as a bag of rice. And I squeeze my eyes and conjure the kindest, most virtuous portrait of myself a sensible, literate woman of limited income, a devoted mother who's chosen time with her child over professional advancement, and a safe neighborhood over service for eight. Please see that, I think. And the sky is the bright, unchanging dusk of summer night. 
The tulip trees darken and fill until suddenly there is no light at all coming through them. We have to go in, both of us as reluctant as Max, as if there are no mosquitoes, as if tomorrow will be no good, as if this, this handspring, the one he can't do in the velvety dark, is the one that must be done tonight. And the porch light sends Max's shadow across Huddy's light gray pants and Huddy's shadow across my porch steps onto my feet. And I think it will be all right if I die tonight after I touch him. You talk in the book of um, the compulsion that Elizabeth has to want to touch. Well, I think that there are people, not, a, not very many, for better or for worse, in the world that your bodies speak to each other. And sometimes that means that the rest of you speaks to each other, and sometimes it doesn't. But there is a physical connection that is like a conversation. And I think that although a long, unhappy marriage could certainly erode that, I think that it's a very powerful voice and as powerful as any other in a relationship. Tell me about the different relationships, if, if in fact they are different, that you perceive when you're traveling from city to city to meet groups of strangers to whom you read a portion of the book. I mean, my different relationships with them as I am reading. And how you perceive that, but, but also I, I want to hear about that, but I also want to hear about if you see different groups in different regions of the United States. Oh, I, I don't know that I see the differences so much by area. Um, you know, obviously, if I'm reading in a college town, I get a lot of, you know, people between 18 and 24. Um, if I'm reading in a bigger city, uh, there's a more diverse group. Um, you know, I see... I see groups of people that I clearly identify as male and female and um, people who are straight and people who are gay or uh, people who I think are straight or people who I think are gay and people who are older and people who are younger. Uh, there always seems to me to be uh, a significant range. And well, do your relationships with them change? Uh, are there some that are particularly outstanding or uh, some that you would prefer not to live again? My relationships with my readers? Yes. Or your listeners? Well, my listeners um, definitely do vary. Um, you know, uh, there are people who feel that they know me because they've heard me or read me. Um, people who feel very sure that we've had very similar life experiences because of something I've written. And sometimes that's true and sometimes it's not true. And... Uh, can you let on to that, to the uh, people who say, gee, I did that too? Well, it, it depends, partially because I, I don't wish to make the person feel that they are alone after they have just felt that they were not at all alone. But, for example, in the collection of short stories, there's a story in which uh, a young woman has a schizophrenic sister, and I got a lot of mail and comments from people about their own schizophrenic siblings and how helpful the story was to them. And I felt very good about that. But sometimes I felt a little bad when somebody would say to me, I know you must have had this experience. And the fact is that I hadn't. And you don't, tell, you don't want to tell them that. Well, what I usually say is, well, as a matter of fact, I did not have a schizophrenic sibling. 
but I certainly do um, understand this experience as best I can. So like that, and and that that seems to be okay. Um, but I know that that will also happen with this book. That different people will identify with different pieces, and um, for some people that there will be positive parts of that, and for some people there might be painful parts of that, and. I'm very glad if the writing makes them feel that I, that I have been there with them or that I have been in that myself, whether it's true or not. Amy, can you tell us about some of the new projects that you are working on? <sighs> well, I'm uh, in the process of doing some surgery on a short story and uh, another one that's sort of trying to get its head lifted up and focusing on that and fantasizing a little bit about what's going to come next in terms of writing and and looking forward to that um, you know both sort of in nonfiction which I tend to find somewhat easier and in fiction which I tend to find quite difficult but obviously compelling well Amy Bloom I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious and before we close I want to ask you the question I like to ask all of my guests and that is, could you tell us of an interesting book that you've read lately? Sure. Um, I read a book that is, may not be very easy to find. It's published by St. Martin's Press, and it's called Seeing Calvin Coolidge in a Dream by a guy named John Derbyshire, whom I've never heard of before. And it is small and quite wonderful, I think. It is both engaging and charming and very painful and very skillful in its use of language. The narrator is a middle-aged Chinese-born uh, banker who now lives in America with his wife and his little kid. And he becomes, as he has been occasionally in childhood and then again in adolescence, a great fan of a philosopher. And the philosopher that he chooses this time is Calvin Coolidge, whom he sees as the great American peasant and thinker. And it's very funny. He's got a great ear. He's very witty. And also, there are these very painful and anguished passages about his experiences as a red guard in China um, and his swimming from China to Hong Kong. And they're very, there's nothing excessive and there's nothing, oh, look at how much I'm suffering in the prose. It's always very careful and um, beautifully put together. So that, for me, was a real treat. I didn't know I was going to stumble across this book. Uh, no one ever told me about it, and I enjoyed it a great deal. Tell us the name once again. Seeing Calvin Coolidge in a Dream. By John Durbanshire. St. Martin's Press. Amy Bloom, author of Love Invents Us. Thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much. Amy Bloom is the author of Love Invents Us. The book that she recommends is Seeing Calvin Coolidge in a Dream by John Derbyshire from St. Martin's Press. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, RadioCurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious 
at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.